lovely listeners out there. It's Sarah here, the Tudor Travel Guide, and welcome to May's episode of the Tudor Travel Show. So wherever you are in the world, I hope you are doing fine. I know that some of you are easing out of lockdown and others are still in the thick of it, but wherever you are, I hope you are keeping well. Here in the UK, although lockdown is easing, of course, All historic sites remain closed and I don't know about you but I am missing my history fix and I'm dying to get back out on the road. Anyway, I hope today's episode will help a little bit because before lockdown in February of this year I travelled to Eltham Palace in Kent and I met with Jeremy Ashby who is the head curator at English Heritage And I was lucky enough to go on a tour of Eltham with Jeremy, particularly focusing in on its medieval and Tudor history. Now, Jeremy is a font of all knowledge about the property, so it was a real pleasure to wander around with him and talk about the Tudor history of the site and in particular being an Anne Boleyn fan myself, as many of you will know, interrogate him about some of the events that occurred at Eltham in relation to Anne, which of course is particularly pertinent since we are in the month of May, which is always an important date on the Tudor calendar for those of us who are admirers of Anne. Now, it was a beautiful day when I visited Eltham back in uh, February, and because there was so much to talk about and so much to see, I have decided to focus this month's episode of the Tudor Travel Show just on this particular interview. And in fact, I will be putting out an additional Tudor Travel Show extra next week, which will be incorporating another interview that I recorded, intended for May, with Owen Emerson from Heaver Castle and we're going to be talking with Owen about some of the research that he has been doing recently uncovering some of Heaver's past. One final thing before we go over to listen to the interview with Jeremy just to say that there is a blog post which accompanies this podcast and includes some of the images which I captured on the day so if you want a visual as well as the audio, make sure you check out the link which I will include in the description associated with this particular episode. Okay, so now let's go time travelling and go over to Eltham and catch up with Jeremy Ashby of English Heritage. 
So I've come here this morning on a beautiful, sunny February morning. I have lucked out big time today uh, to come to see Elton Palace. I haven't been for a few years, but of course it's a really important Tudor site. And I am here today with Jeremy Ashby. Hello, Jeremy, and welcome to the Tudor Travel Show. Hello, and welcome to Elton Palace. You're very welcome indeed. Thank you. It's going to be a really interesting morning because I know you are all about buildings, and so am I. So hopefully we'll really be able to recreate Tudor Elton as it was in the 16th century. Yeah, let's see what we can do. There's a few better sites to try it on, That's I'd say. That's wonderful. So before we go on, perhaps you would just like to introduce yourself, Jeremy. Who are you and what do you do with English Heritage? I I'm Jeremy Ashby. I am the head properties curator at English Heritage. Uh, and as you say, I'm a bit of a building nut. Um, so I'm actually in my dream job because we have 420 of the fave things uh, all across the country, ranging from Stonehenge to a Cold War bunker. And I've been working at English Heritage since 2003. Uh, and I still have only just scratched the surface of it, but you have come to one of my favourites. I don't say that about all of the properties because I really love the Middle Ages and the Tudor period. Mm. And Eltham is one of the places where not only do we have a fantastic story to tell, but there's also some beautiful buildings and bits of archaeology to talk about. Yeah, and we're standing on one of them, aren't we? Because we're actually on the bridge that spans the moat. Yeah. So given that, and it's one of the oldest parts of the palace, is that right? Well, it's one of the oldest parts of the palace you can see above ground, right. but actually this is a long backstory to Elton Palace that goes back certainly as far as the Norman Conquest and maybe even earlier. And it's a story that is consistently about fine living and important people. Mm -hmm. uh, we first know about Elton Palace, we first know about a residence at Eltham in the Doomsday Survey of 1086 when it was the home of Odo Bishop of Bayeux, a relative of William the Conqueror. Uh, it passes through a number of important bishops, uh, including Anthony Beck, Bishop of Durham, who builds palatially here. And then in the early 14th century, it passes to the royal household. It had been given to uh, the future Edward II. He gave it to his wife and uh, Edward III, their son, took it on and it became part of the royal estate, which it's remained ever since. It actually is still a property of the Crown and we at English Heritage just look after it. Is that it. so? I didn't know that. That's really interesting. And below the ground, inside the palace, we can be pretty certain that there's important surviving stuff right. uh, from all of those periods, which is amazing. Yeah. What we're standing on mm. uh, is uh, a beautiful stone bridge, lovely perpendicular Gothic arches underneath, running across the water-filled moat. Um, we don't actually know who built it. It might possibly have been built by Richard II at the mm -hmm. end of the 14th century, but I think we're fairly, fairly confident that a lot of uh, the structure, or maybe the whole of it, is actually built by Edward IV, who's a very important part of Elton's story. Mm. And dare I say it, though he's not a Tudor, a very important part of the Tudor story, he was Henry VIII's grandfather. Of course. And one has to imagine, and I think I can make the case, using Elton, that, you know, Henry VIII's learnt a lot from his grandfather, though, of course, he died before he was born and they never met, but they, they seem to me to be quite similar personalities, mm. big personalities, people with fine 
finely honed appetites, both for intellectual and physical things. Both of them tall, strong, handsome men. Mm. And both of them particularly with a keen sense of the theatricality that you have to have if you're going to be a successful king. Yes. And Eltham has got all of this all in of that. And we're going to be really digging into that. And we're going to go inside in the moment into what was the inner core. But before we do that, could I just pause and say, there was what, when you come to Eltham today, you arrive um, at the gates, which brings you onto this stone bridge that you've just been describing. It looks like that was it. But of course, in the Tudor period, it was much bigger, wasn't it? So it was much bigger. Could you bigger. say just a few things about what lay actually outside of, of, of the kind of the, the other side of the bridge? Well, you know? as you approach Eltham, you get a few hints, actually, if you just look at <laughs> the street do, names. You do, because suddenly you? they start to say things like tilt yard approach, you think, what's going on there? <laughs> yeah. And courtyard as we approach, and King John's Walk. <laughs> this is an illustrious history, because as you rightly say, the bit inside the island in the middle of the moat is actually only half of Elton Palace. That's the inner part of Elton Palace, but you would have passed through a big outer court. And actually, what we're standing on, we can just look to one side of the mm. bridge. You can see very heavily restored, undeniably, but mm. a timber frame building, Indeed. which is we call the Lord Chancellor's lodgings. Mm -hmm. And very conceivably, that is an adapted bit of a palace that Henry VIII would have known. Right. It had uh, a big sort of horseshoe courtyard, so you would have passed through a gatehouse, and already we can actually see, you know, if you, I could walk you down there and show you exactly where it was, because you can see kinks in the walls at, at the points where, where that courtyard starts. Brilliant. And in fact, if you walk around, you know, once you get your eye in, you'll see that bit of brickwork in that garden wall, that looks early. Uh -huh. There's actually quite a lot of the outer structures in there. And the outer court, there would have been residences for some of the less favoured of courtiers and their retinues that stay here. Also, some of the stuff to do with food preparation uh -huh. and some of the, some of the sort of heavier duty houses yeah. of office although they're duplicated to some extent for what you actually have within the inner complex. It's very, very big. And also some grounds for sport. So tilt yard we talk about, and we know that tournaments are quite a big thing of what they do at Elton. Archery butts, other gardens. So, so, so it's, a, it's much, much bigger than, than, than actually just the island that you see now. And I believe Elton was one of Henry's great houses. Is that right? I.e. the houses that could hold, house the whole court. Yeah, the whole court of perhaps 800 or more people. Yeah. There aren't that many that can do it, and Eltham is one of them. Yeah. And it's not for nothing that constitutional historians and historians of the royal household, Eltham has a very special place because one of the key documents, the Eltham Ordinances, which actually says, you know, how you should run the household and who should have access to the king and who the important courtiers are going to be, it gets its name from Eltham Palace. That is where the document was first promulgated. So it is actually a very important residence. Rather sad to imagine that after the period that we're principally going to be talking about, the Henry VIII period, it then does go downhill quite fast. And we'll get the chance yeah, to talk we'll a little talk bit about that, about that a little yes. bit later. But during certainly the early years of Henry's reign, um, it's, it's a very, very important property. Mm. Very important. One of the most important in the land. And so what we're doing now is we're walking along the stone bridge and we're heading into what's today an inner turning circle, but was in the medieval Tudor period, the inner courtyard, yes. where all the, the, the high status buildings of the palace were. Now, you mentioned, of course, that the history of Eltham goes back a long way, but it really starts to kick in, doesn't it, in the medieval period, it where does. it becomes a very important palace for the Yorkist kings. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that in a little bit more detail? And yeah, I what do. They had but to... Before we get to the Tudors and, uh, and, and, and the, the Yorkists, I'd like to take the story a little bit further back because I think there are some general points that could be made from much earlier.
when you look at the itineraries of kings and queens, certainly from the 14th and 15th century, Eltham is fairly consistently a place that they choose to come to, and they spend certain important feasts of the year, including Christmas here, voluntarily, and I don't think they would do that mm. unless it had actually been a very attractive place. When we consider some of the buildings that they constructed, some of the named buildings, Richard II, for example, builds a dancing chamber here, and that's, you know, indicative. You don't get them in all of the properties. No. You don't get them in many castles around the place. And that's different to a, a great hall, then, a dancing it chamber. It seems to be, yeah. That's I mean, actually, the, the, what they do in great halls, we'll talk about that when we get inside, because yeah. it's not entirely what you might expect. <laughs> but um, and, and the appeal of the place, I mean, it, 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 it's manifold. It's not in London, but it's fairly close to London. This is a place where... Um, it's quite close to, to, to the main road approaching London from the southeast. Yeah. And I'm sure that actually that's part of it too. If you've got a foreign visitor that's coming to the court, you can actually entertain them here within spitting distance of London, you can see lovely views actually uh, towards the city. And you literally can. So I'm standing here in this turning circle, which was the inner courtyard, and the, the panorama across to London to the west, is it, over in that direction? Uh, that's right, yeah, yeah we, we are west. just to the east of London. Yeah, is amazing. <laughs> and, you know, you can see the dome of St Paul's Cathedral. You would have seen the spire of St Paul's Cathedral. Yeah. You would have seen the Tower of London. You would have seen the steeples of, of all the churches of the city clustering around. It looks great from this this beautiful vantage point and I mean really the only thing that it hasn't got and I think this is you know the, 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 this later comes to bite Eltham quite badly mm. is you can't get here directly by river yeah. you can get directly to Greenwich just down the road mm. by river and ultimately I think that starts to count against Eltham mm. but for much of the time this is a place where you can impress your visitors and you can you know be out of London but still within easy easy, easy uh, reach of it and I guess there must have been woodland and hunting forest around here because there was usually a there hunting was forest whenever there was a king there was a hunting park <laughs> uh, it was actually we know where it was it was over to the south side and actually I mean the bare bones of it still survive you know even even today although of course that's not what it's used for mm. and suburban development of London has started to nibble around the edges of it but actually you know I do believe that yes okay if we could bring Henry VIII back today he would be fairly traumatized by quite a lot of what he could see <laughs> except when he turns that the building in front of us yes, the great hall indeed. of the palace is a building that Henry would have known intimately absolutely so we're walking around the inner courtyard now facing us is this beautiful medieval building which is uh, from a Tudor lover's perspective it's the pièce de résistance isn't it it's, of, yes <laughs> of Eltham so do you want to tell us a little bit about it's that? a miraculous survival I have to say that we <laughs> We know that it was built uh, from 1275 to the early, oh, sorry, 1475 to the early 1480s by uh, Edward IV, uh, Henry's maternal grandfather, uh, who'd come into a lot of money at that time because he'd just done, to some people's minds, a slightly shameful deal with the French. Um, <laughs> surrendering a few uh, political claims in order for it to be to be bought off and he spent on making uh, Eltham into a truly palatial residence sadly this is the most sub substantial surviving bit that, that that's, that's that's still left to us today but what a survival because it is pretty much intact it's a big long hall it's, it's something like 31 meters long about 11 meters wide very very tall with on each side big bay windows mm -hmm. um, running projecting out um, into uh, what's now um, 
a grassy courtyard, and then would have been a courtyard that's hem that would have been hemmed in by a lot of other buildings, mm. many of them in brick, um, some of them in stone, some of them also timber framed. And let's, let's remember that this is a period where actually there's probably not that much inferior about timber framed architecture. You can make it very, very flashy. Mm. Um, it's a bit of conspicuous consumption there. And there was a lot of painting, wasn't there, when in between the panels. So, that, so like at Whitehall later, it was a very distinctive kind of patterning that went on. Yeah, and it's sort of distinctively English as well. And I think there's an <laughs> element of that about, about all of this too. But, uh, you know, to, to uh, you know, uh, the aesthetic of Hampton Court Palace is a little bit more coherent and a little bit more, more uniform than I think we would have seen at Eltham. Mm. I would dearly love to be able to see Eltham Palace actually in its, uh, oh. you know, in, 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 in its heyday. Um, and I, I think, you know, it, it wouldn't have looked chaotic. It would have looked very busy. It would have looked, uh, looked, sort of looked, looked, looked quite elaborate, but certainly a fitting stage for, for the display of magnificence that, that, that a court of the late 15th and early 16th century demanded. So inside this inner courtyard, what buildings, you said there would be a range of buildings, what would we have seen? Well, we're standing in a fairly featureless lawn. Yeah. Actually, we're standing on top of one of them. They're projecting <laughs> along the whole of the western side of the palace. So that's facing west, as it were, mm. downhill towards the city of London. There was almost continuous um, range of buildings and we know that it was on this side from the 15th century and certainly through the Tudor period that the main royal lodgings were built. Interestingly they moved around a bit during history. Richard II seems to have had them over on the other side. Oh. Edward IV wasn't having any of that. No, 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 they've got to be facing <laughs> towards London and here I can build up really, really big. And we know a fair bit about them. They're well documented, fortunately. The Tudors are great bureaucrats, so, so in fact, the, you know, the building um, of the Tudor Palace is, is, is fairly well documented. But also, very helpfully, in the 1970s, the Department of the Environment carried out archaeological excavations, some of which have been filled in, some of which are actually still displayed. You can right. see quite a lot of stone and brickwork from parts of the, of the me late medieval and Tudor Palace actually still displayed but on the site. What you were telling me earlier, before we started recording that what you can see is just a fragment it actually is much that range is much deeper that's than that. right yes I mean they displayed some of some of the bits across to one side of it but actually it would rather it would rather get in the way and I mean for example you know running along exactly where we're standing now there was a big range of buildings to the king's apartments which would have contained you know, doubtless, um, you know, all of the standard state apartments, the, the, the great watching chamber, the chamber of presence, the privy chamber, and so on and so forth, and also a chapel. And we know they excavated parts of the chapel in the 1970s, but not all of it, because the turning circle that was built in the 1930s when Elton was adapted as a, another kind of palatial residence for a millionaire, Stephen Courtauld, that needed to remain in, in place. So the excavations are a little bit fragmentary. But fortunately, the, the documents, the excavations, and a very helpful plan made at the beginning of the 17th century when the palace was still intact, we can actually put the whole lot together and reconstruct Eltham in quite a lot of detail. So what I'd love to do is come back and specifically talk about a little bit more detail, maybe about the Queen's lodgings and Anne Boleyn, because obviously it's the month of May and it's the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's executions. It would be great to think a little bit more about Anne and Eltham and what happened here. Sure. But before we do that, we're right next to the Great Hall, so why don't we dive inside and then go and have a look at the interior? Brilliant idea. Let's do that right Let's now. Let's do that.
side and it, it is one of the greatest, grandest, great halls in England, isn't it? I mean, there's only Hampton Court, I would have thought, and, and Westminster Hall that, that can compare. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, and it's very interesting you should mention both of them, because <laughs> um, I'm pretty certain that in the evolution of great halls, Eltham sits right in the middle between Westminster Hall, that it borrows quite a lot from, and Hampton Court that borrows quite okay. a lot from Eltham. It's big, it's, it's a cavernous space, and you do when you come in. I mean, you, it, you, you've got to take a moment to actually get your eye in because initially, um, particularly on sunny days like today, it's very, very light. You know, the, yeah. there's, there's, there's high clearstery windows running around down both sides. And of course, the tall, full light windows of the bay windows. It's a very, very light space. But up above us, what initially looks very dark, an undifferentiated sort of cavernous mass of darkness, actually is, is a very elaborate timber structure. And is this the original roof? Very substantially, it is the original roof. When your eye gets in enough, you'll see that um, the, the dark secret about it, it has to be held together with a lot of steel that was right. put in in 1912. <laughs> okay. um, the building had, 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 had been through a, a number of uses, not all of them congenial, hmm. uh, between abandonment in the 17th century and the early 20th, particularly it was used as a barn. Yes. But they kept it, that was a wonderful thing, and the roof had substantially survived. In the 1912, the architect Charles Pierce um, had to put in quite a lot of steels in order, to, in order right. to hold it up. But it's a very, very elaborate piece of, piece of carpentry. We know uh, from surviving 15th century accounts mm. that it was made by the King's master carpenter, a man called Gravely, a uh -huh. uh, stonemason who built the stone walls and the windows that, that, that it rests on top of, uh, Mr. Jordan. And it's uh, a structure that's quite like what you see at Hampton Court. Yes. Um, many people will understand this as a hammer beam roof. Yes. And that's, that's basically what we call it, although actually technically it's a false hammer beam roof because it does have certain idiosyncratic details that not true hammer beam roofs have that the, um, the hammer posts, the, bit that, the bits that are sort of sticking vertically up towards yes. the centre of the structure, don't actually rest on the hammer beams. The hammer beams are tenoned into the side of them. But that's a small technical detail. Mm -hmm. You can all see that actually there's a bit of belt and braces here because it, has, it also works um, by a second structural principle of arch braces that run all the way across from one wall to the next. And that combination is something that... Gravely and Jordan had directly copied from Westminster Hall. I see. Which had been built in the late 14th century for, for Richard II. Much bigger than this, mm. but in its time, it's still a masterpiece of medieval carpentry. It's a wonder how they did it. Can you, can you summarise in, <laughs> in a fairly succinct way? How did they know? How to do this? They the were they were available. master craftsmen, and they'd been doing this kind of stuff for for, for quite a long time. I mean, it's it is a technically quite difficult thing to do, but there's a lot of science in it. It's not just you know you put it up and hope mm. I hope it will stand up. I think they knew exactly what they were doing, and it is a very it's, it's a well preserved structure. I mean, as I say, it had to have steelworks that was put mm. in in the uh, in the early twentieth century, but it had survived for, mm. for three centuries That's without true. any of that. You, you just That's you know, incredible. including some some pretty bad bad times when it was used as a barn. So it's no, it's a, it's a wonderful elaborate piece of carpentry, and I think it's fair. You know what we see now as just dark timber. 
I'm sure it would have been picked out, we know from other mm. places that we have never found evidence of it here, picked out in colours, picked out with gilding. There are quite elaborately carved pendants that are dangling down uh, from, mm. that, from the hammer posts. Um, you know, I mean, it, this is just and made it, for fine display. And it looks like there was a central Louvre in the middle there. There for was. The, that's the largely samples. been reconstructed uh, during the 20th century, but we are pretty certain, and the, the, the early 17th century plan shows an octagonal fireplace in the centre right. of the floor. So the old sort of, you know, idea, which has been around, you know, since Anglo-Saxon times, of, of you know, everyone gathering around the hearth, you know, in one of these big communal spaces, that's still up to a point what they're thinking of this of this place for mm. um you know although you know if you were to go to, to to most you know fine houses and palaces you know a lot of living happens in smaller spaces and you know but it, 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 it's less communal nevertheless there are still occasions where you're going to want to have the full theater mm. of the court and this is the good place to do it and for the obvious reason that as you walk in here it takes your breath away and it still does now you you you, mm. you have, and the give acoustics out. are fine, aren't they? So you can imagine with the music playing, yeah. the atmosphere would be amazing in here, and the hubbub. And I'd never really considered that, but it is true, although I can tell you that when I've done tours in here, mm. the moment you turn away from people, they lose you totally. And I remember once being shouted at quite badly as I was turning and gesturing at some detail and going, <laughs> Oi, we're over here. Maybe that was so, done on purpose, you know, if you needed to talk to somebody and you didn't want anybody else to hear. Yeah, that's right. To, to, to retreat into a dark corner and say, but my Lord Bishop, that yes, would be treason indeed, and all the other sir, sort of parts indeed, that we sir. expect. But we actually do know a little bit about a few events that actually happened here mm -hmm. during, during, during the Tudor period. As I say, it was built for Edward IV. We don't really know that much, although Edward did have a big banquet here in, in, towards the end of his, of, of his life. It really is toward, towards the end, of, uh, the end of his reign and his life when this was finished. But um, I'd quite like to read you a description uh, from Hall's Chronicle um, describing uh, Christmas of uh, 1515 and 1516. Mm. It's a bit long, but I'll cut this. After the Parliament was ended, the King, Henry VIII, kept a solemn Christmas at Eltham. On Twelfth Night in the Hall was made a goodly castle, wondrously set out, and in it certain ladies and knights. When the King and Queen were sat, in came other knights and assailed the castle, where many a good stripe was given. <laughs> And at the last, the assailants were beaten away and then issued out knights and ladies out of the castle, which ladies were rich and strangely disguised for all their apparel was of braids of gold fretted with moving spangles and more and more and more about their costumes, which will cut through mm -hmm. that. When the dancing was done, the banquet was served in 200 dishes with great plenty to everybody. Well, Merry Christmas. But, okay. you know, <laughs> it, it sounds ridiculous, but a space of this kind, I mean, even without mock castles and, and mm. knights and ladies giving each other goodly stripes, <laughs> it's, it, it's got theatricality it is, to it. It is, it's a theatre, isn't it? And as you're reading that, I'm literally seeing all that happening in my mind's eye, so thank you very much <sighs> for giving me that description as in the place it actually happened. But of course, there was another famous event to do with Henry VIII, but he was much younger. Yeah, a bit more take. intimate than that, and we're actually standing pretty much on the spot. On, <laughs> we are standing on the dais. Oh, my God, of, come on, we're standing on, Oh, come on. <laughs> control yourself. You're, you're, control yourself. yourself. You're, you're, you're in the presence of royalty here. <laughs> the, um, this is a story from Desiderius Erasmus, friend of Thomas More, humanist, philosopher, writer, who talks about an event at Eltham in 1499. He's staying in England and he is brought over to Eltham to meet the young royals because Eltham at that time was used as, as the nursery. 
Arthur was a, was away, but all the other children were here. Mm. And Erasmus um, tells the story about how Thomas More basically set him up in front of the young Henry, and the young Henry turned the screw on him a little bit. Again, sorry, this is a slightly long story, and I will have to um, paraphrase a bit, mm. and some of it's my translation, which is not the best, but anyway. But he talks about basically the circumstance in which he composed a poem, which is about the children of Henry VII. And what he says is, Thomas More had seen me living in Mountjoy's household, had dragged me to the next village, Elton. There lay the reason my mind was so troubled. All the king's children, except the eldest, Arthur, were being brought up here. When we came into the hall, here we are, mm -hmm. everyone was assembled in state with all of Mountjoy's household as well. In the middle sat Henry, nine years old, already showing signs of a truly regal nature with quickness of mind. And here we are on the dais, Henry in the middle, you know. Right in front of us, literally. It has to be. Right there is a central line, he's got to be right here. Yeah. Not this table that's no, here, no. but you can imagine him yeah. in the centre. Okay. And the others are here too. On the right, Margaret, nearly 11 years old, who later married James of Scotland, so she's over to yes. our right. On the left, the four year old Mary playing, and Edmund was still a baby in arms, so imagine yeah. Nurse as well hanging the about. Mary, the future Queen of Scotland, uh, Queen of France, I should say. You know, so, there's yes. that, that, a family that's going places. Yeah. So, uh, Moore and his colleague Arnold greeted the boy Henry, since become the royal flower of England, and gave him some writing or other. I had not been prepared for anything like this and had nothing to show him. So, you know. Thomas Awkward. More had not said, Awkward. you don't come and see young Henry without giving him a present, and he'd come empty-handed. So he's like, oh, what do I do? So quickly, instead I made a bargain that I would give him a demonstration of my learning. All this time I was furious with Moore, who'd given me no <laughs> warning. All the more so because in the meantime, while at dinner, the child sent me a note with a challenge to my pen. So Henry sends him down a note saying, come on, what about it? And I'm waiting for my poem. <laughs> so I went home and called on the muses so long estranged from me within the three days I finished my poem. I found a cure for both my grief and my shame. Well, you know, it's an intimate moment in a big space, but you can sort of... Well, you can visualise yeah, it. I can visualise it. I, I'm, I really, it's just made me all of a flutter because, re, I mean, I know of those words, but you reading them here with me standing right in front of aware of Henry would have sat. For well, I do have to say, when I've done tours here before, once I did manage to contrive it, that there was a quite large gentleman on the <laughs> tour and I managed just to sort of arrange it so he was in the place without uh -huh. quite knowing what I was doing. So yeah. you are now being Henry, you know, <laughs> yeah. age nine. But, but, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's really got to be here. And I think the important point to make is that, yeah, okay, it's a nursery, but it's also a training ground. And I mean, you yeah. know, when you live in a place like this yes. and you're growing up, you sort of get some sense of what life is going to hold in store for you, yeah. even though Henry, of course, you know, Arthur was still alive. Henry was not, mm. at that moment, going to become the king. Mm. But he's obviously the master of the situation. He's obviously, you know, a man of a certain... Sorry, a child of, you know, of a, cer a certain wit, um, yes. you know, who's prepared to exploit the situation in front of one of the great intellectuals of he Europe. Wasn't but he's daunted, was he wasn't daunted, was he? Not daunted at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, isn't that, that rather telling that yes, already, you know, he, 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 could, he could command the room yes. very clearly. And of course, you know, the lesson of history is he went on to do that more effectively than, than many others. Yes, yeah. indeed. Well, I've got just a couple of other things I'd love to ask you about in here. First of all, it's just about the features because I think it's quite interesting for people to learn about almost like how to read a Tudor, how the apartments flowed yeah. into one another. And of course, you've got the low end at the far end with the screens. Yes. And then when you come to Eltham, you've got the two 
doors on either side. So you can't go through those doors now, can you, as a visitor? Uh, well, yes, you can. Oh, you um, can as a visitor. You right. can, but you won't get quite the effect that, that, <laughs> no. that, that you had before. Not all, um, not all, all great halls do this, but. The, you know, the way to read these structures, and it's still, you know, an architectural form that certain public schools, Oxbridge colleges, and even, you know, a number of houses have still got features of this kind. You're in a sort of social continuum from low status down at one end to very, very high status at, at, at one end. And, and of course, that, that's given manifestation in the architecture that you step up onto a raised platform, the dice, so that they are literally looking down on some people, and it gets lighter as well. You've got the bay windows mm -hmm. that directly, you know, cast light in here, mm -hmm. and the, the the heating, the 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 fireplace, wasn't actually right in the middle. Mm -hmm. It was nearer to the to to, to the to okay. the dais and the high end of the hall, and the marshals in the hall would have been very adept at placing people along tables running down the width of, down down the length of the hall, you know. Yeah, you're quite posh. I'll put you up quite near near to the top end. Erasmus can go somewhere where the young Henry can get a note to him quite quickly. He's not down, you know, mm. with Baldrick down in the <laughs> down at the service end. <laughs> yes. But certain other people are going to be down nearer yeah. the door. Um, yeah. Now, okay, yeah, this is a very, um, yeah, this is a comfortable building, and it takes, you know, that those kind of social gradations would have been more meaningful much earlier in the Middle Ages, when to be near the door would have been to freeze to death. Okay, nearer to the kitchen too, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. You might get fed earlier, but no, so, so on it goes. Now, and as you say, so you come up to the, mm. to the high end, this is where the table was, running at right angles, for, so people are looking down the length of the hall. And then, as you rightly point out, to either side, there, are, there is a door. There mm. are two doors. Now, we don't actually know what, that, what they're for, but this is a royal palace. I think it certainly makes sense to imagine that one of them is for the king, one of them is for the queen, and maybe they could appear, you know, as it were, simultaneously yes. or together, you know. That kind of slightly cheesy theatricality. Yes, sure, like Strictly Come Dancing, uh, Tudor style. Yeah, you know, or Shirley Bassey walking down a, down a, a sort of mad staircase. I mean, it's, it's yes. you know, that, that, that kind of showiness doesn't come out of nowhere. And... Well, certainly what we know, yes, you can go through these doors, but they don't take you where you would have gone in, the, in, in Edward IV's time and in the Tudor period because they would have taken you to different parts of the royal lodgings because running at right angles to the Great Hall, but off the high end mm. was where the royal lodgings were. Mm. These big um, stacked structures with this, these amazing views westwards out towards London. The king's side over towards the, the, the left, mm. if you're facing towards the high end of the table, and the queen's side on the right going off in that direction. So, OK, I can only guess that that's what those doors are for, but that's the way I would quite like to imagine. Mm. And I think that's a great segue, actually, for us to pick up our conversation about the Queen's side and about Anne Boleyn. I did happen to notice while you were speaking uh, the uh, Anne Boleyn's falcon badge up there. Is that, uh, is that the falcon badge? It looked like Anne Boleyn's falcon badge. It is, no, it is. It's the falcon and fetterlock. Yeah. Um, or is it one of the, York, so that's a Yorkist symbol, isn't it? The, uh, and, uh, the falcon and fetterlock. I always thought it was Anne Boleyn. I mean, you're, you're, you're more up on Anne Boleyn heraldry than I am. However, yeah. before you get your idea that this is, this is a survival, <laughs> a miraculous <laughs> survival, we know it's not. Yeah. The palace, as I said, was rehabilitated in, mm. the, in the 1930s by Stephen and Virginia Courtauld who were fascinated by the history of the place. Yes, 
on large parts of the site, they built their own very flashy modern house. Um, mm. And they entertained lavishly here. And, but, but Stephen you know, himself, he wrote and published a book about the history of Eltham. He was very, very interested in it. And among the people that they entertained here were, were, were present-day royalty, Queen Mary particularly, who said, look, you've really got to commemorate you know, all the great mm. times of history that had actually happened at Eltham. So if I could just sort of take you over, over mm. here, there's a little um, inscription that they actually put on the wall that Queen Mary had asked them to to put with Latin at the top yes. and an English uh, translation down below that talks about some of the great figures. The hall was built by Edward IV in the year 1479, the bridge over the moat by Richard II, possibly actually by Edward IV, we think, mm -hmm. the moat walls by Anthony Beck, Bishop of Durham, and so on and so forth. And the Latin actually says, you know, this hall was built by the, the shining, splendid King Edward, um, once upon a time had fallen into uh, disrepair, has now been repaired by the works of Stephen and Virginia, Stephen right. and Virginia Courtauld. Yeah. Yeah. And they commissioned the stained glass artist Kruger Gray to actually put heraldic um, mm. devices in some of the windows. Yeah. So all the way down the hall, you've got some Yorkshire symbols. You've got sun in splendor, you've got the white rose, you've got falcon and fetterlock, as we say. Um, but you've also, in the bay window, you've got some of the royal heraldry of figures of particular importance. So Edward I, uh, Edward III, um, who grows up at, uh, at Eltham, spends quite a lot of time here. Mm -hmm. Richard II, who does quite a lot of building here. And then over on the right, King Henry VIII. So he gets star billing at yeah. Eltham, and quite right yeah, too. Yeah, so not original glass, but very beautiful, and it adds a lovely decoration to the hall. Yeah, but evocative of the great that's history the that, that actually Eltham yeah. represents, and I think you know it's definitely that's that's important that it should be here. Mm. So as I was saying, it was a nice segue before to go and talk maybe about um, the Queen's Chambers and maybe a little bit about some of the events that happened here, particularly in relationship to Anne Boleyn. Yeah, so let's go back outside. Okay. take a very short break from that interview but don't worry we'll be going back to Eltham shortly. However in the meantime we are going to head over to the TTG news desk to find out and catch up with exactly what dramatic events have been breaking in the Tudor month of May. Welcome to the May O'Clock News with your newsreader, Robert Cole. Here are the Tudor headlines for the month. Anne Boleyn is arrested at Greenwich Palace. Three Carthusian monks are executed at Tyburn for defying Henry VIII's Act of Supremacy. Henry VII is laid to rest next to his wife, Elizabeth of York, at Westminster Abbey. Lady Jane Grey marries the son of the Duke of Northumberland at Durham House in London. Good day. 
And now for our top story. There are reports coming in that the Queen has been arrested at Greenwich and has been taken by Royal Barge to the Tower where she is being detained at His Majesty's pleasure. It is currently unclear exactly on what grounds Anne Boleyn has been arrested, but there are rumours that at least one other person close to His Grace, King Henry VIII, has also been taken to the Tower. For more on this sensational story, we are going straight over to Bess Cavendish, who is on the wharf right outside the Tower as we speak. Bess, what do you know of today's events? Hello, Robert. Yes, well, I'm here just outside the Tower, as you say, where only moments ago I witnessed an extraordinary event. Anne Boleyn, Queen of England, and until just recently, apparently the King's most beloved wife, came ashore here by the Queen's steps and was taken under armed guard across the Devlin Bridge and on into the Tower. Did she say anything? No, she didn't, but she did look pale and was clearly shocked by the dramatic turn of events. And of course, it was only yesterday that the court was celebrating May Day with the usual spectacle of the May Day joust at Greenwich. The Queen was alongside the King for that event, although rumours that something was amiss started to spread soon afterwards, when witnesses who were present at the joust reported that the King was passed a note part way through the event, and after which he abruptly left for the Palace of Whitehall, unusually leaving the Queen behind. Hmm, do we know on what grounds the Queen has been arrested? Well, I managed to speak briefly with one of the noblemen who accompanied the Queen here to the Tower, her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk. I understand from him that the Queen was summoned for a royal commission that had been specially assembled at Greenwich, and which, according to the Duke, consisted of himself, Sir William Fitzwilliam and Sir William Paulet, and there she was accused of committing adultery with three different men. Reportedly, two of those men have already confessed their guilt. And do we know who they are? One of them is thought to be Sir Henry Norris, who is, of course, the King's groom of the stool, and perhaps the man closest to the King's person. Some people I have spoken to this morning, in fact, say that they saw Sir Henry brought here to the Tower just after dawn, which does give weight to this rumour. Mm, and do we have any idea of what will happen to the Queen? Well, it's difficult to say, Robert. The arrest of a Queen is unprecedented, as far as I'm aware. Well, under normal circumstances, such charges, those of adultery, must amount to treason, for which the penalty, if found guilty, is death. But it seems inconceivable that the King will move against his wife and the mother of his daughter, Princess Elizabeth. So some have speculated already that she will be placed in a nunnery or sent abroad, as there are murmurings that the King wants to be rid of Anne Boleyn so that he may take a new wife. And there are reports that his eye has fallen upon a certain lady at court 
Mistress Seymour, the eldest daughter of the late Sir John Seymour. But I guess, Robert, only time will tell. Well, thank you, Bess. Uh, I think, as you can hear, there are some remarkable events unfolding here in the capital at present. Uh, so we shall see how that all develops. But that does conclude this month's TTG News Desk, and we will return in June. But for now, it's back to the 21st century. Wow, can you imagine just how sensational that news must have been at the time? Certainly London was alight with gossip. Anyway, we're going to leave those events behind us now and return to the much more tranquil, peaceful and beautiful surroundings of Elton Palace where, in fact, Anne knew some very happy times as well as some rather trying ones. So let's go back over and catch up with the final part of my interview with Jeremy and conclude our tour of the palace. Were there Tudor gardens here? There were, but not here. I mean, the, the, where, where you've got yeah. these gardens, they're, they're the infilled moat. Oh, yes. um, there were some gardens that were around um, on the counterscarp of the moat on the south side, and I think a few more. Um, out, they talk about gardens and archery butts, which I assume right, were somewhere yes. over on the eastern side or, or the northeast. It's a great blocked-up doorway, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I love mean, a good blocked-up doorway. I love a good blocked-up doorway. I have to say that, I mean, that whole side of it, they're, 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 there's a lot of bodging there up. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yeah, that's right. But, yeah. Yes, I, mean, I, I can take you down a bit of the sewer anyway. We're about to do that now. But. Right. Let's go down. I say. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, I suspect this is more, um, this is less Anne Boleyn and more her daughter, the great Elizabeth, but this is, these are the cesspits under the, are they? under the really? privies, yeah, and they drop down. So we're, we're, we're literally standing in this kind of uh, tunnel, really, aren't we? It looks like a tunnel. It's now a tunnel because they've broken through at one end, but this is, this, this would have basically been where Baldrick would come <laughs> and shovel the, start, shovel the gong out. Uh, yeah, well, that's um, amazing. I didn't think I'd be in good for the, the rhubarb, but yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so was this, was there a whole range of latrines, guard robes, ground for, for the household? It's here, not, right? no, this is not a common house of easement. These are for the, these for the for royal the lodgings. lodgings. Yeah, yeah, they these are. These are the privy toilets we're standing in now. Yeah, let me show you Thorpe's, well, Thorpe's you plan. Go. So we are just sort of under there, yeah. and as you see, this, they've shoved them in next to fireplaces and other things course, in, the, in the lodgings yes. up above. Wow, so there you go. We are in the King's Privy Toilets. Oh. Seem to be doing a lot of that. Well, I recently. think Elizabeth's Privy Toilets, because oh, right. the, 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 the thing about, about Eltham is that unusually we actually got some stuff that Elizabeth herself built, whereas oh. so much of Elizabeth is about... Um, you know, making other people do the building and she'll come and stay in it. She, <laughs> yeah, actually, she actually did She this. certainly has to rehabilitate quite a lot of the, of the front. Um, so this diaper brickwork, and you've got it all the way around um, So basically we've, we've just, we've come out the, what was the back of the service courtyard through the, what was part of the sewage system. And we're now in 
Well, this well now is, you're, you're now standing in the in, in the in the dry in the, the infilled moat. Yes. Um, so yeah, you, you'd, you'd be pretty wet. Yes. Um, <laughs> but looking at some substantial kind of footings and brickworks, it was once part of the royal lodgings. That's on the, right. On the King's End or Elizabeth's later on in the. Yes, the that's right. Because under Elizabeth, of course, they flipped the polarity yeah. um, over. So she moves into what had been the King's, King's lodgings yeah. because they are the, the, the and lodgings the Queen's of the lodgings sovereign. remains empty and, and vacant. And then James comes along and he's got a queen and so they go back to normality yes. in the in the early 17th century but it's uh, and these are now beautiful gardens aren't they they are Absolutely so actually having this, this, this Tudor brickwork because I mean it is very fine brickwork and it has this um, the, 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 this, this pattern of the of the oh, diamond yes. diaper work on them yes but what you can also see is that she has some Elizabeth has some some quite elaborate um, sort of star-shaped projections yes. uh, on there, which is a feature that she didn't invent. They, they'd had things like that since Henry VII's time. Um, it's only the brick that survived. The stone, which was on all the corners, has been nicked. So actually you've got to sort of mentally oh, put that back in order to make some sense of it. So it's like, it, this is like projecting out from the wall. Yeah. It, it's for decoration, I guess, it is it's been done in that way. It's it is for decoration. You know, I can do a fancy pattern on It, it is for decoration, <laughs> although no, no one's going to see it because this no, is the moat. This is so the moat. It's all with it running around. But they know that's what they've got. And more importantly, I mean, it does tell us a little bit about the, 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 the style of architecture of, the, of these big towering buildings, most of which have gone, that you can see where these projections were. That's going to be where guard robes were, where fireplaces were, where bay windows were. Right, yes. Um, so can you just, so as we said, on this west range yes. is the entire privy lodging range yes. with the kings on one side, queens on the other side. Yes. So if we were if we were the other side of the moat, not drowning in it as we would be right now, what would we see looking at it? Is um, it two-storey, three-storey? What kind of windows would it be? What do we know about that? Well, I, I, I suspect at least it would look like at least three storeys, but that's because we're below what would have been the lowest level right. um, of, the, of them before. I think under Elizabeth's time it gets much bigger, and unfortunately it's only from that period that we have, well, it's, it's only actually from after Elizabeth had done her work that we have a depiction of Eltham at all, and I'm afraid that's not the most reliable. It's a sketch by a man called Jay Stent, right. but he does show Eltham Palace facing uh, towards the east. So you're actually looking at this range together, and what right. you've got is what looks like two skyscrapers with a range of buildings running uh, along between them. Uh -huh. So tall at each end, mm. with a slightly less tall building. Um, in the middle, and it's in that less tall building in the middle that the range of state apartments, the, the, the presence and privy chamber, actually would have been. And then you get into, as it were, stacked lodging uh -huh. at either side for, 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 for the monarchs. And maybe, you know, you can imagine at that time it would have looked a little bit like the structure at Kenilworth Castle that's called Leicester's Building, which yes. is basically a skyscraper. It's got very, very big windows, yes. one on top of another. Mm -hmm. And in Henry's time, you know, it would have looked elaborate it certainly would have, would have, would have looked i think quite uh, quite quite showy um, but it didn't probably have the same kind of you know enormous expenditure on glass windows it, it had what they had at that time um, but but under elizabeth these things get taken to to a to a fairly ridiculous mm. degree
But they also perform a, a practical purpose. They contain the apartments so that the king and queen can, as it were, live together, but also independently if they need to, because of course the queen is a, is a you know, has a persona of her own. Mm. So when Anne Boleyn is staying here, we can well imagine that courtiers would have come to see her independently. And of course, that's what causes problems, isn't it? Because in as much as you know, she lives a life at the centre of a court of her own, there can always be intrigue and gossip about what she's doing at any time. And when the relationship with Henry goes sour and people seem to be coming out of the woodwork to say unpleasant things about her, they can say, well, you know, we didn't like to tell anyone this at the time, mm. but we saw all sorts of funny people creeping in and out of her lodgings. Mm. And, of course, it gets very, very lurid. You know, some of the things that they say about it is that she's actually committing adultery and incest, you know, with members of her, of her own family. And one of the suggestions that they make is that actually some of this stuff happens at Eltham. It's recorded, isn't it, I think, in the indictment that the, 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 her liaison with her brother, yeah. or one of them, was supposed to have occurred here. I think it was in Christmas, uh, Christmas 1535, I think. Well, if it happened, if and it, I have to well, say, let, I mean, I've always, yes. you know... <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. I, 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 being a fan of Anne Boleyn, I, I don't buy into it myself, but you know, it was in the indictment, so. Well, anyway, this is Eltham, and <laughs> yeah. obviously, you know, Eltham was the kind of place where, you know, it's a, it's a palace, it's a residence that, that, that's complex enough that such liaisons perhaps might be imagined, you know, that's going on. But let's pass quickly over from that. Let's there's do a, that. There's a, because actually down at this end mm. um, is also a very important structure in any uh, royal residence, the Tudor period, the chapel. Ah, yes, so we, we basically, we've, we've walked right along the length of the West Range from where the King's privy lodgings would be, past, as you say, the Presence Chamber area, yeah. and we're now down, to, down towards the Queen's End. And yes, there was a big, was it Henry VIII who built the chapel He here? did build the chapel. There had always been a chapel here before, mm. and I think it had probably moved around. We know that Henry builds that chapel uh, in the late uh, 15... Tens and during the 1520s. So, it's, you know, if only it had survived above the ground, it would be fascinating to see because mm. we could compare it with things like Hampton Court, where, of course, you know, a slightly later chapel, you know, has survived, mm. and we've, you know, we've got all of that. Um, and it, we, we know a fair bit about that chapel. We know uh, through documentation that it was intended that it would be a timber-framed building, but fortunately in the 1970s when we dug up, um, enough of it survived. You can see that it wasn't timber-framed at all. It was brick all the way through. Um, on, on footings partly of stone. So it's a quite substantial building. And what we know about it from its plan is basically it's a rectangular structure with the altar traditionally at the eastern end on a raised step. We know uh, that it had choir stalls also in the eastern side because Henry likes his, 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 his liturgy to be ornate. You know, he's, he's got one of the best choirs in Europe and he's gonna, it's gonna travel with him. When, when he's here, Chapel Royal Choir will be here. So they are performing you know, the very complicated polyphony that we, that we can see. But the western end of it is the bit that really interests me, because when it was excavated, and again, this is a detail that's in the documents, there are two spiral staircases adjoining the western end of the chapel that are running up from the ground floor of the chapel to some structure on the first floor, the Holy Day Closet, and we know that there were two to each side, probably one for the king, one for the queen. Mm. Now, this is something that, again, you see when you go to Hampton Court, although actually what you're seeing now is the successor of the of the Henrician Holy Day Closets, the structure that's put in for, uh, for for Queen Anne at the beginning of the 18th century. But 
we know that it was there, and that's how they would have experienced their worship, that you, you, you heard mass and you saw the elevation of the host, but otherwise you did the crossword and you did you know, what other buildings you ever needed to do. Yes. And it was yes. enough that the priest was saying the liturgy on your behalf yeah. and the choir was singing and doing, doing what they do, and you, you paid attention at the important, crucial moments of the liturgy, and otherwise you got on with what you were doing. And there's a story uh, from, it must be from 1534, uh, about Anne and uh, Princess Mary um, in that chapel. Mm. And you may know better than I do where it comes from, because actually now I can't remember. No, oh, I'm trying to remember myself. Um, I think there's one account from the Duchess of Ferrier, who was one of um, Mary's or Catherine of Aragon's ladies, right. and she recounted it some time okay. later. And I think that might have been where okay. it's from, but I, to be honest, without checking. Oh. I need to go back. It doesn't really matter where it comes from. No. I mean, it actually, it's a, it, it, to my mind, it's, quite, it's a reasonably telling story, yeah. though, of course, it, you know, it, it says some pretty bad things about the relationship of, yes. of, you know, of Anne and, and Mary. If it is genuinely 1534, and that sort of makes sense, uh, it's got to be before the death of Catherine of Aragon, because Catherine of Aragon features off stage during the story. And if I remember That's rightly, the way that it essentially goes is that both um, Mary and Anne were hearing mass in the closet at the west end of the chapel. And at a certain moment, uh, Mary performed a reverence towards the altar, which one of Anne's ladies misconstrued as being a reverence towards Anne as the queen, and Anne hadn't noticed any of this. The lady told Anne, I think Mary had done a reverence to you and you didn't do it, and Anne thinks, oh, okay, I can build some bridges with this difficult girl, and sends a message. The Queen says she's terribly sorry not to have acknowledged you, to which Mary goes, I think you need to understand a few things. First of all, who is this Queen that is sending me? I only acknowledge one Queen, that is my mother living far away. And second, I will you know, die in a ditch before I will ever do a reverence to you. I was doing a reverence to your maker, you know, God in the altar. Mm. So. Yeah, she really put Anne in her place. She put Anne in her I think place. that was probably almost the last straw because there'd been a little bit of an altercation like that at Hatfield earlier on in the year, if I remember rightly, and I think that was probably Anne's last, uh, last straw with uh, Mary at that point. But, I mean, even allowing for, you, for your, your known predilection for Anne, I have to say that Mary <laughs> scores a few points from me at this moment because this is a point where Mary has been written out of the succession that the marriage of her beloved parents has been declared to have been invalid, and therefore they are um, retrospectively making her illegitimate, which lots of people in the country thought, hang about, yeah. you know. <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah, okay, you say what you like about the marriage, but the conception of this, this daughter is no fault of hers. And that Anne was basically saying, well, this, this girl is, you know, no more than a servant in the household of my, my baby daughter, Elizabeth. There can be no sense of parity about her. So actually, the indomitable nature of Mary at that moment, I think, you know... I, she I'd really say. stood her ground. And yeah. you, as you say, you can understand why her whole life had been turned upside down. Yeah. And uh, it must have been an incredibly demeaning situation for her to be waiting on her baby sister. Absolutely. So, yes, you can understand her hurt. You so. can understand her hurt. Well, anyway, Eltham is, is famously the, the place where, where this happens. And uh, as well as saying something about the, uh, about, about the personality and the, and the relationship of those two, you know, spectacularly important women in the Tudor court, the architectural setting for it is, is, is believable, I think, mm. uh, that way, and you can mm. see how it would have it, mm. it all would have been put together. And what we know about the about the chapel, it, it sort of it must go for the rest of the palace because we know that some of the decoration of it, it has Renaissance 
and medievalizing details mixed in in a, in a quite sort of interesting and uncategorizable un un way. We know from the excavations that they found bits of gilding of, 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 of sort of details of leaves and other things that were that were parts of the choir stools actually for the for mm. the for the for the, the chapel choir in, mm. you know, in the mm. chapel. Mm. And it must have had, you know, we know from from Thorpe's plan of the 17th century had quite big windows. We've got to imagine the full range of stained glass, the saints and, and, and everything. Because of course, though you know Henry had taken uh, religion in England away from Rome, in other respects it remained Catholic. I mean, it was the, the liturgy was in Latin. It was very very ornate. It was it was you know full vestments and and and, and music and all those other things because they are all contributing to the magnificence of his court. And do we know? from a scale point of view, how this chapel compared with the one at Hampton Court, because many people will have been and seen that, and so they will understand uh, what a comparison might look like. I mean, I'm just looking at the plan now, and I haven't got the plan of Hampton Court in front of me. Mm. I mean, it's, it's smaller, I would say, mm. but not enormously smaller. It's in the same kind of league um, of all of this. It's certainly, you know, if it were a parish church, it would be on the big side, it would be respectable, certainly. Um, so the idea that actually this thing isn't really for big congregational worship, this is, this is for um, you know, a priest and a choir to perform a liturgy for the benefit of people stuck away in a closet at one end who probably aren't paying attention for much of it. Um, you know, it's got a monumentalism about mm. it. Um, and a, again, I keep saying theatricality, mm. but I think that's the only term that you can really use about mm. it. It's all about display. History, but as you said, it sort of went into decline, didn't it? For a very good reason. You mentioned that, and that's Greenwich and the river in particular. Do you want to say a little bit about what happened around that time, and kind of how did the end of Elton finally come? Well, about? sort of more with a whimper than a bang, really. I mean, it was still in use. Um, for the rest of the Tudor period, and as I say, Elizabeth actually does some building here and and James do, 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 does some building here too but the fact that the court is traveling more and more up and down the Thames by river that must have stood against Elton and inevitably when places start to go into decline it's very difficult to to arrest that so its place within 17th century history it's sort of, it, it really is declining really quite fast and then it had a very bad period after the civil after the civil war when a, a gentleman uh, with a picturesque name of rich the rebel was supposed to have nicked pretty much anything that he could get his hands How away perfectly from out. and so by the time that we start to get any a, a, a number of pictures of elton as i said i've talked about the stent mm. uh, sketch and that's the only thing that really shows the palace intact and in use by the time you get into the 18th century with some very good topographical drawings. The Great Hall was surviving in use as a barn. Other houses had been built on the platform, but most of the other structures had gone, not just the royal lodgings, but the kitchens and other service buildings and pretty much everything else. This enclosing 
network of, 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 of lodgings and, and other residential buildings around the perimeter had totally been lost and it had contracted to essentially becoming a farm mm. complex, albeit with some rather monumental buildings surviving. Mm. And that's how it remained through the 18th, the 19th and into the early 20th century. Still the property of the Crown, but they weren't really doing very much with it. And the key moment comes uh, in the 1930s when Stephen and Virginia Courthold, uh, very, very wealthy through, um, through, uh, uh, through the textile industry, wanted a place to uh, live stylishly near London, but, but outside London. Stephen, as I say, a man of very interesting, many, many intellectual pursuits, was deeply inspired by the history of the place, but he also saw the possibility of building anew on the site using, uh, he, had, he had a great um, fondness for, for bringing on talented young people and he brings together a very eclectic mix of architects and interior designers and various other places from all over Europe. They create this slightly bonkers building, I have to say, which <laughs> I love dearly. I think it's a wonderful place um, where within a an exterior that's almost of traditional Queen Anne style. You have Swedish modernism, jockeying with Art Deco, jockeying with, you know, whatever, with the very, very finest of craftsmanship. This, this place where Stephen and Virginia, and their, uh, they had no children, but they had nephews, uh, lived a family life here, um, waited on hand and foot by many servants, and entertained people from the, the entertainment industry, but also royalty. Now, Okay, it doesn't look anything like the Tudor Palace, but I think some of that sense of, of, of star quality and mm. showiness and elaboration mm. actually has survived. And to that end, I do feel that the, the, the continuity hasn't ever completely been broken um, with what you see here. So mm. when you come to Eltham now, and we know that people come for a whole variety of reasons, mm. The lovers of Tudor and medieval history are introduced to the 1930s. The lovers of 1930s glamour are introduced to a bit of Tudor and medieval history. And so long may it continue, I In, say. Indeed. And you mentioned about visiting. So maybe, first of all, um, what events might you be having over the forthcoming year that people might be interested in how they and how can they find out more about you well always have a look on the english heritage website english-heritage.org.uk you'll find that all over the place and elton palace has its own but if you just google elton palace your our website will come up really quite quickly we have events throughout the year and they are themed um, in a whole variety of ways i mean sometimes they're about the 1930s which is very popular but actually people love tudors so you know, as long as the weather allows it, we like to have jousts at several times of the year, which is, of course, something that historically they did here, you know, mm. in the Tudor period and in the Middle Ages as well. Um, so just have a look on the website and we'll see. But other than that, you know, for much of the year, the place is open and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful place to explore. So it's open all year round? I think that's right. Uh, certainly from, from, from Easter onwards, throughout, throughout the yes. summer and, 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 and into the autumn. Yes, and if people are lucky and they come on a nice, lovely February morning like we have today, then it'd be beautiful. I, I can't guarantee that, but actually there is something for all weathers here because, you know, we do, un unlike... Um, a number of other properties that English Heritage looks after. Some of our best buildings have still got serviceable roofs yeah. and, you know, and furniture <laughs> and contents, so you can stick your head indoors until the rain stops and then come out and enjoy the garden. Indeed. Well, let me just say thank you so much, Jeremy, for showing us round. I have loved learning about 
Eltham and its architectural beauty and all its nuances from you. So thank you for sharing your oh, knowledge Well, thank with you us. very much for coming. It's always been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that concludes my uh, journey around Elton Palace with Jeremy Ashby. That's a big thank you to Jeremy and everybody at English Heritage for making us so welcome. I hope you enjoyed that tour and we'll put Elton Palace on your next Tudor itinerary. Now, just before I go, there's a couple of little announcements that I would like to make. Uh, the first of those is that uh, I have recently, as some of you will know, concluded an extremely successful two-day virtual summit to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Field of Cloth of Gold. Now, that summit took place last weekend um, and we had over 2,200 people register and so far well over 6,000 hours worth of videos watched. There were seven speakers taking part uh, in the uh, summit and many of you contacted me afterwards saying, oh no, I missed it. Can I see the videos? Well, I'm here to announce that for a 24-hour period only, from and on the 7th of June, I will be reopening registration to anybody who missed signing up the first time around. Now, you will then have about two weeks to watch all of the videos at your leisure. Uh, so if you did miss it and you'd love to catch up and see what all the buzz was about, because my goodness, social media was a light with the FOCG 500 hashtag, then make sure you subscribe to my blog via the homepage at www.thetudortravelguide.com and then you will receive my newsletter which will announce exactly when registration reopens with the links to do so, etc. And in fact, to just celebrate that, I'm going to be doing my first ever live YouTube stream with Professor Glenn Richardson, who was our leading speaker kicking off day one, talking about the social, political and religious aspects of the field. So if you have seen the videos or you have questions about the field of cloth of gold, um, it would be great if you could subscribe to my YouTube channel. Again, you will then be notified when I go live with Glenn on the 7th of June and you'll be able to come along and you'll be able to ask your questions via the live chat. That's going to be a first for me so yes I'm slightly nervous but really looking forward to being having some more real-time interaction with you guys. Okay so I think that's probably it for this month's episode. As I said though remember that we do have an Tudor Travel Show Extra coming your way next week. So if you want another fix, this is the month for you. All right, my friends, it has been lovely to share this Tudor love with you and I look forward to catching up with you very, very soon. Until then, happy time traveling. Mm -hmm.